The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades, and the grass, or the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's take a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would help us to uh, understand the things that we are uh, reading and may have a greater appreciation of your control, not only of human history, but of the details of our lives and that uh, reconfirmation of the fact that no matter how uh, out of control things may seem, we are reminded that we always have you to rely on and you have made a perfect provision for every situation, no matter what it is, through uh, the provisions of your word and the uh, various spiritual skills that you have revealed to us. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Daniel 12. Daniel chapter 12. And this evening we, Lord willing, are going to begin Daniel 12 and end Daniel tonight. Next week, we'll begin a new series on the doctrines of salvation. You may think you understand salvation, but we're going to try to look at things in a little different perspective and, and deal with some uh, various other passages. So that will begin next, uh, next week, Wednesday night. Now, let's focus a minute on the overview here. Daniel 10 through 12 presents the last vision in the book of Daniel. The first major vision, remember, had to do with the uh, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which is we see on the overhead, the sta- great statue that outlined human history. In the conclusion in Daniel chapter 12, we come to the end of human history. And in the end of Daniel chapter 11, the focus was on the the uh, rise of the first beast, the man of sin, the Antichrist, and the emphasis was that. This man, who more than anyone else in all of human history, reveals to us how bad the human race really is. You know, one of the problems that we have is with the term evil. I've heard that comment many times since September 11th last year. The people have, uh, we started using the word evil to describe the actions of the terrorists, and many people have commented that that's a word that just sort of fell out of usage for many years because it has such uh, moral baggage with it. You know, in our postmodern times, people haven't wanted to talk about evil, but the worst evil in the world is not that which is the overt sin or criminality or violence, such as 
has been demonstrated this summer with some of the uh, much publicized uh, kidnapping of children and abuse of children and other things of that nature. The worst evil in human history comes under the guise of good. And the Antichrist at the end time is going to promote many good things, many things that we already see being promoted today as that which is good. One world government, unity, ecumenicalism, uh, social compassion, redistribution of wealth, all of these things. And the, the result is that everything comes crashing down on him. So in the end times, in the tribulation, God is going to uh, pull, pull back the restraints on human evil, and Satan is going to empower the first beast, the uh, Antichrist, and God is going to uh, let him take all of his plans, all of the programs, everything representing the very best uh, that man on his own can do, and take it to its logical extension, and the result is that the human race is brought to the verge of self-extinction. And the reason for this is that God is going to demonstrate in the tribulation and through the Antichrist and the false prophet that man, that the creature on his own, apart from God, no matter how good he may uh, appear to be, no matter how benevolent his policies may appear on the surface, that man, apart from God, is never going to be successful. It brings to a conclusion the primary emphasis in the angelic conflict where Satan claims that God ought to allow the creature to run things as the creature desert, uh, as, as the creature desires. And that was Satan's ultimate plan from his fall was a claim to be God and to be able to run things independently of God and to be as successful, if not more successful, than God. So the agenda here is to show that the creature, no matter how talented, no matter how successful, no matter how intelligent he is, can never achieve real success and real stability in history apart from God. And as we concluded Daniel 11 last time, we looked at how all of this is going to come to a final uh, battle in the Middle East. We looked at Daniel 11, uh, 40 to 45, and then we tried to relate that to the Gog and Magog invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which uh, was may have confused many of you, and I'm sort of glad of that because it's confused me for several months, and it is a... It is a confusing and difficult passage to understand, but I wanted you to understand what the issues are because if you read any of the uh, fictional books, the Left Behind series, or if you read uh, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, or if you read any of the other books on prophecy, sooner or later somebody is going to take a position on where they're going to put that, that invasion from Gog and Magog. And as is often the case, they'll present their position and I wanted you to understand that there's no, even among good men, excellent scholars, people of the caliber of uh, John Walvoord, former president of Dallas Seminary, uh, Dwight Pentecost, who in his generation was considered one of the greatest experts on biblical prophecy, uh, people like uh, Tim LaHaye, uh, Tommy Ice, and many others disagree on how these things fit together because if you study the passages themselves, as I pointed out last time, there always seems to be one major flaw in every position. And so I don't think there's any real uh, dogmatism that can be asserted when it comes to figuring out how those things fit fit together. 
I personally tend to think that that invasion is part of what takes place during the end, the, the final battle of Armageddon, but that even that position has a number of, a number of weaknesses. Actually, the, the chapter break at the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12 comes at an awkward place. The chapter break actually should have occurred between verse 4 and verse 5. So verse 1 really takes place uh, contextually in the narrative right after verse 45 of Daniel 12. Daniel, I mean of Daniel 11. Daniel 11:45 says, "And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the ten, between the seas." That's the Mediterranean. It's talking about the Antichrist as he comes back into the glorious land or the land of Israel. He shall plant his tents, the tents of his palace between the seas. That's the Mediterranean and the glorious holy mountain. That's the Temple Mount or Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. That's a very uh, abbreviated way of describing the battle of Armageddon when the Antichrist is destroyed and that brings to an end the tribulation. And then verse 1 of chapter 12 begins. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is written, found written in the book, will be rescued. Now, there's many different things in this one verse that we need to note in order to understand the background and understand what what is going on here. First thing we need to recognize is the emphasis of the phrase of the time of this verse, at that time. In context, this is at the same time that the battle takes place or that of the tribulation at the end of Daniel Chapter 11. Remember, in Daniel 11:36 to 45, the time frame shifted to the tribulation. And if you note at verse 40, Daniel 11:40 begins: "At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him." Now, as we put this together, what we're going to see is exactly what I suggested last time, and that is that from Daniel. Uh, 1140 to 45, we have a description of the military campaigns of the Antichrist during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And we see in verse 1 a temporal reference that at that time, so Michael shall stand up. Now, this indicates that Michael has been in a posture of sitting. That indicates that he has not been directly involved in anything, and now he is going to stand up, which indicates he's going to go into action. We have to understand some things about Michael. Michael is called the great prince here. In Jude 9, he's called the archangel. He is the only archangel, the only one identified as such in the Bible, and his role is always related to God's plan for Israel and specifically protecting Israel and watching over Israel. Every time you see Michael referenced in the Scripture, it has something to do with God's plan for Israel. Michael has been sitting down because from the time of the ascension of Christ until the church is raptured, there is no job for Michael. Michael is only working in the background, but it's not until God's plan reverts to Israel at the beginning of the tribulation that Michael will go into action. And actually, 
He doesn't seem to go into action until the midway point of the tribulation. Remember, that is the start of what uh, Jesus Christ referred to as the great tribulation. When you look at the uh, seven and a, seven years of the tribulation, we have the rapture. Uh-oh, somebody slipped a sharpie up here on me, and that's a, a permanent marker. Let's get rid of that. Well, we'll see that arrow for a long time. Okay, we have the rapture. That ends the church age. Then there is an indeterminate period of time. Could be a few months, could be longer. We have no way of knowing. And then the tribulation itself begins when the Antichrist uh, signs a peace treaty with Israel. That begins the 70th week of Daniel which is divided into uh, two time periods, two time periods of three and a half years each, referred to in this text and in many others as a time, that's one unit of measure, times, that's two units of measure, and a half a time. So one plus two plus a half equals three and a half. And it is this second half of the tribulation that ends with the second coming of Christ that is referred to as the Great Tribulation. This is the time when everything intensifies, and this is the time when there is there three and a half years of incessant battle uh, in Palestine. It is a time when, according to this passage and others, Israel is virtually defeated as a nation and on the verge of extinction, and that is when they flee to the mountains down near Petra, down in, in a Moab, and finally turn to the Lord and cry out, according to Joel 2, for Jesus Christ as their Messiah to come and deliver them. So this is the period of time that we are talking about in this passage. And it is at the beginning of this time of Israel's greatest trauma, the greatest assaults on Israel, that Michael is going to stand stand up. So at that time, the great prince who stands guard over the over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred in, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So the question is, what is it that activates Michael to stand up and begin to get directly involved? And the word that we have here translated distress is the Hebrew word Tsara. It's the Hebrew word Tsara, which looks like this in the Hebrew, Tsa, Tsara, T, this is really a T-Z-A-R-A-H. And in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, it is translated by the Greek word thlipsis, which is one of two words for uh, suffering or adversity or tribulation, spelled T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. And it is this word thlipsis that the Lord Jesus Christ uses when he is talking about the great tribulation in Matthew 24:21, which seems to indicate that in the upper room discourse, when Jesus got to that point, he has... Daniel 12.1 in mind. 
Matthew 24:21, Jesus said, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So this is a passage that clearly indicates that there is a future for Israel, that God has a future plan for Israel, because Jesus indicates from this statement that never before has there been such a conflagration. Never before has there been such a war. Never before has there been such misery and such suffering. And that's the same thing that Daniel says in Daniel 12.1. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So this indicates when you put Daniel 12.1 together with Matthew 24.21, Matthew 24:21 is even stronger. Daniel just says there never was a such a such a time of distress from the time there was a nation until this time. Jesus says it goes beyond that and says nor ever shall. This is the greatest trauma, the greatest war, the greatest suffering and misery to ever occur in human history. Now what happens today is that there has come on the scene uh, a number of people who are teaching that all this prophecy really ended in 70 A.D. Jesus returned at that time. It was a, a spiritual return. And so all of prophecy has already taken place in the past, and that position is called the preterist position, and it's becoming very popular. And there are more and more people teaching this. It was, let's put it this way, it was considered a dead position when I went to seminary, and none of us ever even heard that word in any of our classes uh, back in the late 70s. So this is basically resurrected as a result of the rise of post-millennialism and some other things in the last 20 years and is based on an allegorical interpretation of the Scriptures. But this, they have a very difficult time with a passage such, such as this in order to get around its meaning and its significance. First of all, there is an emphasis on your people, and there's only one way to take your people in this passage, and that is as the Jews. You can't spiritualize it to the church. This will be a time of uh, tremendous conflagration, a time of war, unlike anything that has ever happened, and it is uh, related to Daniel's people. And everywhere else in the book of Daniel that this phrase, your people, is used, it always refers to the Jews. It always refers to Israel. Furthermore, uh, this passage states, Daniel 12.1, there will be a time of uh, distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, what does that mean, since there was a nation? Well, if you go back and you do a study of the Scripture, the first kingdom, the first nation to come on the scene, did not occur until after Noah's flood in Genesis 10.10, and that was in Babel, and that was Nimrod's kingdom. And so what uh, Daniel is emphasizing here is that this distress is going to be worse than anything that's happened since the worldwide flood of Noah's day. 
The verse goes on to say that this will be a time of distress as has never occurred since there was a nation, that is, since the flood, until that time. And at that time, your people, that's the second time it indicates your people, second time it states at that time. And so, once again, the focus is in this last three and a half years of the tribulation, and specifically at the end of the tribulation. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And the Hebrew word here for rescued is not a term that connotes salvation. It is simply a term that connotes or denotes physical rescue at a time of, of, of trauma. And so the emphasis here is that God is going to rescue the nation at the last minute. Zechariah 13.8 informs us that by the end of the tribulation, only one-third of the Jews survive. Two-thirds of all the Jews that exist on the earth at the beginning of the tribulation are going to be killed, and they're going to be dead by the end of the tribulation. And Michael is going to stand up in order to protect and preserve the Jews and the remnant of the Jews that are going to survive the tribulation. This passage does not indicate that they are all saved. I think other passages do indicate that they are all saved. And in fact, I've been doing some work on this uh, this concept for a while because Romans chapter 11 teaches that, that at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. Now, th- what's... There are two ways to take this word here. It is the Greek word... Sozo, S-O-Z-O, which in some contexts indicates salvation, that is, deliverance from eternal condemnation. But in many contexts, it just means to be delivered from some sort of trial or adversity. In fact, it can relate to deliverance at the time of physical uh, sickness, and it can have the meaning of, of healing. So we have to decide in context, are we talking about Salvation, meaning they will all Israel will be saved from from an eternal condemnation, or is it just simply talking about the fact that all Israel, that is this remnant, are going to be delivered? Now it indicates in Daniel 12, the indication is simply physical deliverance during the the assault of the Antichrist. But I think there are other passages such as Joel 2 which indicate that this is also relates to spiritual salvation. Now, the question comes, how can you say that all Israel is going to be saved, and that is that every single one of them is going to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And I will explain one way in which that's going to happen. All Israel is going to be saved because at the end of the tribulation, this one-third, 33% that survive, or the ones who follow the commands of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter uh, 24, that when they see the abomination of desolation, they are to flee Jerusalem, they are to flee Israel, and to head to the mountains. Those that have some level of positive volition who have been searching the Scriptures, and we're going to see that later on in this chapter, that there will be people searching uh, the Scriptures. That's what it means, their eyes running to and fro. That's a Hebrew idiom for searching the Scriptures that they will be searching the Scriptures, and some will read that, and although they may not be saved yet, they may not be willing to accept Jesus as Messiah yet, they are going to heed the warning, and they're going to uh, get out of Dodge, as it were, and head for the hills. 
And so only the ones who are positive are going to escape to Basra. And I don't mean down the road here at Basra, Connecticut. But over in the land of Moab, in the, in the wilderness of Basra, and only those who escape to Basra are going to be delivered at the end of the tribulation, and only those who escape to Basra are the ones who have been positive to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, so that all of those who escape to Basra will, by the end of the tribulation, cry out in unison for Jesus to come and deliver them, and that is what's described in Joel chapter 2. So I believe that at the end of the tribulation, all the surviving Jews are going to be saved, and those who exist outside of Basra are all going to be destroyed in the great end-time war that culminates in the battle of Armageddon. Remember, Satan's greatest tool in church history to try to establish his position is anti-Semitism. And he's continually promoting that, and there are subtle forms of anti-Semitism today as you see people uh, taking a political anti-Semitism. They're against uh, support for the nation Israel. They're not going to go so far as to say, well, we ought to put all the Jews in a gas chamber. They don't want to go back to a to uh, sound like, like Hitler and the Nazis, because that's not politically correct. But they will take a position against supporting Israel unequivocally as a nation, and in doing so, they are taking a subtle but nevertheless uh, horrific form of anti, uh, anti-Semitism. Now, we have a description in Hosea chapter 5, verses 14 down through 6-3, of how God is going to deliver Israel during this time. God is speaking there, and it's beginning in Hosea 5:14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Ephraim was a term referring to the northern kingdom Israel. So this includes both uh the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, and the southern tribes. In other words, this is inclusive of all Jews. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. And that's a picture of God's divine discipline on Israel. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me, and that is the time of Jacob's trouble at the end of the tribulation when they will finally turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for deliverance. In Hosea 6, 1, we read what their response is. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revise us, revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is, his going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. In fact, Joel 2 picks up on that same sort of imagery. Hold your place in Dan- Daniel, uh, and just turn over just a few pages. Daniel is followed by Hosea and then Joel, and we're going to look at Joel 2.28. Joel 2.28 states, and it shall come to pass afterwards, that is, after the events of the tribulation and the horrors of that are described in the previous verses. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. These are not spiritual gifts. 
a very interesting question came up when I was at uh, the Conservative Theological Society speaking on the cessation of tongues. That in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 states that uh, prophecy and knowledge will be abolished. That's a better translation than what's in most English versions, that they will be abolished. And that usually is, is indicated to be sometime prior to uh, the tribulation, at least those who are not Pentecostal or not Charismatics will say that knowledge and prophecy ceased at the end of the first century. Well, the question has come up three times. I've never heard this question before, never seen it posed. And three times, though, in the last three weeks as I have taught this, the question has arisen, well, what about Joel 2? Joel 2 says that your sons and daughters will prophesy. So how can you say that prophecy and knowledge would cease in in 90 A.D., if there's going to be prophecy in the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. And it's simple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy and the spiritual gift of knowledge. A spiritual gift, by definition, is a gift that is given to the church by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts were only operative during the time of the church age. In the Old Testament, you had prophecy, but it's not a spiritual gift. It's still it's performed through the endowment of the Holy Spirit, but it is not related to the baptism and indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. So it is it functions with a different mechanic than uh, the spiritual gift of prophecy and knowledge that ha- operates during the church age. So there will be a returned emphasis to prophecy in at the end of the tribulation, but this is not the spiritual gift of prophecy. In fact, this is a very interesting support for a pre-tribulation rapture because if the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge are going to be abolished before or even at the time Jesus returns, which is the view that many people want to hold there, if it's going to be abolished before that time, then obviously... The church has to be removed from the scene so that God can return the emphasis to Israel. And so this is this, while it's not an argument for the pre-tribulation rapture, it certainly demonstrates that the Bible is completely consistent within itself and shows that, that on the basis of correct interpretation, everything comes together. So the church has to be removed because if, a, if prophecy and knowledge have already ceased, as spiritual gifts, then the church has to be removed from the scene so that God can restore prophecy to Israel under the endowment of the Holy Spirit. And that's what takes place in Joel 2, 28 and 29. Then in verse 30, God says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. This is pictured in the last days of the tribulation with the, with the bowl judgments. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, that is the final battle at Armageddon. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So that is the deliverance. Incidentally, that verse may be familiar to some of you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's referenced in Romans chapter 10. Verse 13, and there are many people who want to try to say that to be saved, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but tell somebody, give a testimony, and they'll quote that verse in that passage in, in Romans chapter 10. But the point that 
Paul is making from Romans 9 to Romans 11 is how God's just, God is going to be justified in the future salvation of Israel. And so when you read those verses in Romans chapter 10, Paul is not talking about the salvation of people in the church age, that it's done through a verbal expression of their faith or making a public testimony, but it relates to the fact that the Jews are going to finally call upon the name of the Lord for salvation at the end of the tribulation. So that's what Joel 2 is related to. So Joel 2 and Hosea 5, end of Hosea 5, beginning of Hosea 6, give us a description of what will take place at the end of the tribulation. This will be a prayer that takes place uh, by the nation, led by its leaders. And what we know from a study of the uh, calendar, the ritual calendar of Israel, is that this takes place exactly on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the spring calendar in the Jewish ritual calendar has has three major feast days, the Passover, uh, First Fruits, and the Day of Pentecost. And each of those days had their prophetic fulfillment take place exactly on that day. Jesus was, was crucified on Passover. He rose from the grave on First Fruits. The Holy Spirit descended on the Day of Pentecost. But the feast days in the fall calendar... The Day of Atonement, the Day of the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles have not yet been fulfilled. So it is on the Day of Atonement, the day, probably the day before and the day after, because Hosea uh, 6.2 indicates two days, that it starts the day before and extends through the Day of Atonement, that it is exactly on that day when the rabbis in Israel and the heads of state will turn and call upon Jesus Christ as Messiah to come and deliver Israel. And then he will descend, and he will destroy the armies of the Antichrist, he will destroy the false prophet, and he will deliver Israel. Now this is also pictured in Revelation, and in Revela- and it takes place actually, well actually the church age takes place between Revelation 12.5 and 12.6. In Revelation 12:5 we read, and she gave birth to a son. That is the woman here in the context, and the woman represents Israel. She gave birth to a son, that's the Messiah, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension of Jesus Christ. Then there's a gap between verse 5 and verse 6, and that includes the, the church age and most of the tribulation. And then in verse 6 we read, And the woman, that is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And if you take the 1,260 days and divide it by 30, which is the number of days in a lunar month, uh, you come out with... 42 months. 42 months equals three and a half years. So this is talking about how God is going to protect Israel in the wilderness of Basra during the second half of the tribulation. She is to flee into the wilderness, and it is during this time that Michael is going to stand up for Israel. Now, something very interesting takes place in the heavenlies. Remember, in Revelation, we have two things going on in the description of the tribulation. One is the events that take place on the earth. The other is the events that are taking place in heaven. And these two are going to come together in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven. This is describing now, we just looked at 
at uh, verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 12, which are describing the events uh, leading up to the second half of the tribulation in verse 6. And then at that time, the second half of the tribulation, there was war in heaven. There is going to be this uh, breakout and the intensification of the angelic conflict during this time of, of Satan's great temper tantrum. And there was going to be this final war because Satan knows that he, he's, he knows as much about prophecy as any of us, if not more. And he knows that when the abomination of desolation takes place, which begins that last three-and-a-half-year period, that his days are numbered. He only has three-and-a-half years, and then it's all over with. And he's going to try to do everything he can during that three-and-a-half years to win his case and to destroy Israel. So they attack the throne of God, and Michael and his angels wage war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. In verse 8, we learned that they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Satan is a title for Jesus, for, I mean, is a title for, for Lucifer. It is not a proper name. Shatan means the one who accuses. And it, it functioned in his role as a prosecutor who is trying to uh, bring a case against all believers. He is called the devil and Satan, or Shatan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So at this point, Satan is down on the earth, his, his demons are down on the earth, and they are restricted to a physical space-time existence. That means that the latter part of the tribulation is going to be really bizarre as you are going to see demons uh, visibly on the earth along with mankind and Satan as well. So it's an environment that is completely unprecedented. Then in uh, Revelation 12.10 we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. So this represents Satan as the accusing one. That's his title and all that he has done in human history to attack the people of God, whether Jews in the Old Testament or church-age believers. He is before the throne of God accusing us, but we have a defense attorney in the Lord Jesus Christ who is continuously uh, defending us. Now, in Daniel 12.1, let's go back and pick up the last part of it. It says, that uh, there is a na- that at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Now, amillennialists and postmillennialists have a problem with this phrase, "your people." If you interpret Daniel 12:1 literally, then your people can only refer to to Daniel's people, and that's the Jews. It can't refer to the church age, and yet. I mean, you can't refer to the church, and yet that's exactly what you will run into uh, every time you talk to a post-mill or a-mill. They want to try to make the church a replacement for Israel. This is so bad, I just read the uh, pre-trib research center report that uh, this just came in the mail yesterday. And in Tommy's article, he mentions the fact that 
that he had a recent conversation with uh, a Muslim, and the Muslim makes the argument to Tommy, says, well, you know, uh, the, God has no plan for the future of Israel because the church replaced Israel. So this Muslim was knowledgeable enough about uh, some interpretations in church history, uh, and he was knowledgeable about replacement theology. And yet that is completely false, as we have studied. And the point is that there is no place, no place in all of Scripture where Israel, the term Israel, refers to anything else other than ethnic Jews. It never refers to Christians. And, of course, the passage that's usually brought up is in Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says, and for the Israel of God. And there he's not talking about the church. He's talking about regenerate Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah. So the term Israel never refers to anyone in the Scriptures except for literal uh, literal Jews. Now, the end of the verse references those who are found written in the book. And these are the, one who, the ones who will be rescued. And so the context, even though the word rescue indicates physical deliverance, the context, that is, those who are found written in the book, indicate that, that this term is related to salvation. And this time, this concept of being written in the book is indicated in Revelation 20, verse 12 and verse 15. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the concept here is that this is the written record in heaven of who is saved and who is not saved. And incidentally, they are uh, the unbelievers are condemned not for their sins, but for their works, because they're not good enough to uh, to qualify them to go into heaven. They do not have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Daniel 12:2. We read, "Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake; these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." Now it appears at first glance that this is talking about the same general resurrection. But when we compare this to what we find in, in passages in Revelation chapter 20, we know that these are not, these two resurrections, those to eternal life and the second resurrection, those to disgrace and everlasting contempt, are actually separated by over a thousand years. Now when we look at this first, there's a couple of interesting things to note here. First of all, the phrase, those who sleep. The, the term, those who sleep, does not refer to soul sleep. You do not go to sleep until, and your soul does not go into some sort of state of unconscious limbo until Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. That's not what the scriptures teach at all. That's what Seventh-day Adventists teach, but it is not a biblical doctrine. The term sleep in the scriptures, a figure of speech or euphemism that is used to describe physical death. In most places, it's describing the physical death of believers. John 11, 11 through 14, and Acts 7, 60, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 are all verses where sleep is used as a euphemism for physical death. Let me give those to you one more time. John 11, 11 through 14, Acts 7, verse 60, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 15:51 and 1 Thessalonians 4:13. Uh, three things we can say about this. First of all, the Bible never ta- teaches soul sleep. Secondly, when the believer dies, he immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5:8, we are face to face with the Lord. And Philippians 1:21 through 23. Point number three, when the unbeliever dies, he goes directly to a place of conscious torment. This is in Luke chapter 16, which is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And when the rich man who's an unbeliever dies, he goes into a place of torments where uh, he feels the heat and suffering of the flames. So there is conscious torment there. Now, liberals have often claimed that Daniel 12.2 is the first time that you have any mention of resurrection in the, in the Old Testament, but that is absolutely false. Resurrection is a concept that goes all through the Old Testament. For example, Jesus references it in Matthew 22, verses 23 to 32. This is a passage we've looked at before, and that's when the Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him and said, you know, if a man dies and he doesn't have any children, his wife marries his brother and they don't have any children, and that man dies, and then she remarries and goes through all seven brothers, and they all die and leave her childless, uh, whose, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And, of course, that's kind of an absurd thing because that usually would not happen. And, of course, nobody was wondering if she had uh, was slipping something into their drinks to kill all of the brothers. But Jesus goes to the real heart of the issue. In Matthew 22:29. he says, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, regarding the resurrection of the dead, see, it goes right to the heart of the issue because the Sadducees who are posing this hypothetical question don't even believe in resurrection. And he says, haven't you read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So the present tense that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he's speaking to Moses, indicates that he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though, though they, those three had been in the grave for over 300 years. Furthermore, God made a promise to Abraham that he, Abraham, and also Isaac and Jacob would all see the promised land and they would all live in it. Yet they all died before they ever saw the establishment of the nation in the promised land. And yet, so God, in order to fulfill his promise, must raise them from the dead. Furthermore, Hebrews 11:17 through 19, uh, we're told that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac your descendant shall be called. He, that is, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise men, even from the dead, from which he also received him, that is, Isaac, back as a, as a type. So Hebrews 11:17 to 19 shows that Abraham understood resurrection in Genesis 22. Other passages, such as Job 19:25 to 26, and Isaiah 26:19. 
Hosea 13, 14, and Psalms 16, 9, and 10 all show uh, this doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament. Uh, Job 19.25 states, And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. So Job understood resurrection. Isaiah 26.19, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Hosea 13.14, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. So that indicates resurrection from physical death. And then Psalm 16.9 and 10, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, I won't. The body won't stay in the grave. Neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. So even though that has application to the Messiah, it recognized the principle of resurrection from the dead. Now in verse, back to Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep, the word many is the Hebrew word rabin, in some translations it's, they try to make it all. Many is not all, many is many. It refers to one group. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And this does not indicate a complete resurrection. And we know that in the uh, in Revelation chapter 20, there are stages of resurrection. The first resurrection includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ called the first fruits in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then there's the resurrection of uh, dead church-age believers at the rapture. That's the second stage of the first resurrection. The third stage is at the end of the tribulation and is the resurrection mentioned here, which is the resurrection of uh, the Jewish saints, and this is referenced in Revelation 20, verse 4, where John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. These are the tribulation martyrs. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ, for a thousand years. So that refers to tribulation saints who are going to also reign with Christ alongside of church age saints. And that indicates what we briefly touched on uh, Sunday morning in Ephesians chapter 1, that this is part of mystery doctrine, is that in the Old Testament they saw the Jews as reigning with Christ over the Messianic kingdom. But the mystery doctrine is that Christ would redeem a new people, the church, and in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14 and following, the emphasis there is on the fact that, that these, uh, this mystery would be for the inheritance of the saints and that the church age believers would also, Gentiles would co-reign with Jews in the millennial kingdom. In verse uh, 5 of Revelation 20 we read, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there's another stage of resurrection, and then this is called the first resurrection. So there are ranks to the first resurrection, and they begin with uh, Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The second stage 
is church-age believers at the rapture. The third stage is tribulation uh, martyrs. Those tribulation saints who survive go into the millennial kingdom and they may keep their mortal bodies. That's the for all of this is the first resurrection. Then the second resurrection takes place at the time at the end of the millennium at the great white throne judgment. Then we come to Daniel chapter three, twelve three. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And when this verse emphasizes this, it's emphasizing the, the fact that, that those who cause to have insight, those who have insight is translated as a, as a, a passive, but it's actually a hyphial participle. And in the Greek, I mean, excuse me, in the Hebrew, a hyphial participle or hyphial stem has a causative sense. So it should be translated, those who cause to have insight. And those who cause to have insight is parallel to the next phrase, those who lead the many to righteousness. And you lead someone to righteousness by explaining the gospel. You cause them to have insight by teaching the word. So the reference here is to those who are going to be teaching the word and evangelizing the lost, and they are going to shine brightly. They're going to be like stars. They're going to be the celebrities in heaven and in the millennial kingdom like stars forever and ever because these are the ones who led many to Christ during the time of the tribulation. And then we get the conclusion of the vision in verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Now, actually, some people want to make this say that now it's going to be hidden. No one's going to understand any of this till the end of time. That's not what this means. It means that Daniel is to write these words down in the scroll. Sealing up the scroll means that you you finalize it. And in the ancient world, after you got through with the document, you would roll up the scroll and you would put a seal on it, indicating that it is a complete, finished document and that there was nothing more to be added to it. And so this book would be sealed up until the end of time, indicating that it would probably not be fully understood until the end of time. We find the next phrase, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, you'll read some of the popularists like uh, both Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and others say, well, that indicates a stage today because knowledge doubled. You know, knowledge from uh, uh, the amount of knowledge we had in 1780 doubled by uh, 1930, doubled again by 1960, doubled again by 1970, and every two or three years our corpus of knowledge doubles again. And they want to use that as, as some sort of an indicator of the present time. That's not what this means in context. In context, the phrase going back and forth indicates the eyes going to and fro over the earth. And it indicates somebody studying and studying, trying to find answers. And knowledge will increase. It's not till the end times that, that everything in Daniel is going to be fully understood. Why? Because it's not till you get a, a, a full revelation of the New Testament and get revelation uh, revealed to John in 90 AD that you're really going to have all the information you need to uh, understand uh, these prophecies in Daniel. Uh, 
So when you read Daniel 12:4, this indicates that it won't be until the, the end of time. That is the and many times the end times refers to the end of the church age or end of the tribulation. That knowledge will finally increase, specifically among the Jews. They will finally get an answer. They're studying. They study now. It's amazing how many uh, Jews study various different books. And Tommy was telling me the other day that uh, we were discussing this passage, and he has talked to rabbis uh, who are studying prophecy, but they're not allowed to study the end of Daniel. It's forbidden to them. So what this indicates is that it's in the in the tribulation that the Jews will finally come to an understanding of what Daniel is talking about, and that is what will enable them to survive the tribulation. Uh, Amos 8.11 is a reference to this, where we read, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or thirst, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. See, there is a Famine today for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. That's what's going on today. Now, Daniel 12, 5 to 13 finish, wraps up the book. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? Now, actually, what's happening here is you go back to the beginning of Daniel 10, you have two angels. One's on one side, one's on the other side of of the river. And in verse 6, they ask the question, How long, not how long will it be until the end, but how long will it take for all of these things to transpire once they begin? That's the emphasis of the of the Hebrew, how long will it take once this begins? And Daniel says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. The man dressed in linen above the waters of the river is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He was there in Daniel chapter 10, and he's back now in Daniel 12:7. As he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, one year, times two years, and a half a time. So that's a total of three and a half years. That's the answer to the question that these events are going to take three and a half years to transpire. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, that's the defeat of Israel. They will be shattered completely. That's what it's going to take to bring them to a point of turning to Jesus Christ as their Savior. And at that point, all of these events will be completed. Verse 8, Daniel says, As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? See, Daniel himself didn't understand it all. See, too often we get the idea that the writers of Scripture actually understood the, the full meaning of everything they wrote, and they didn't. Not even the Apostle Paul did. And that surprises some people. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, What do you mean Paul didn't understand everything he wrote? I said, Well, for one thing, let me give you a simple example. Paul did not understand the Trinity as well as you do. Tertullian did not coin the word Trinitas to describe the God existing as three persons in one. And our technical uh, 
definitions, which are biblically sound, were not formulated until the sec- until the late third and fourth centuries A.D. You can't think about the Trinity if you don't have the vocabulary Trinity. You can't think about the 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 hypostatic union if you don't have the vocabulary hypostatic union. If you don't have the right vocabulary, your thinking's limited. Paul did not have those vocabulary words. You have them. You understand these things. It's not that he didn't understand them uh, in a vague way. He did. In a general sense, he did, but not in the precise way as they have been understood through years and years of technical biblical study. So the writers of Scripture did not always understand everything or the full significance of what they wrote. They, they understood it in general senses, but not in a complete sense. Uh, but Daniel is told, don't be impatient, it's not for you to know all of this. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. They won't be fully understood until the end of history. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. That's the process of suffering and adversity in the church age. And we are told that Jesus Christ controls history, and the purification and refinement that we go through is not always as severe as it could be, and not nearly as horrible as it will be during the tribulation. And yet God is always true to his promise that he will not allow us to be tested beyond our ability, but will, with the test, make a way to escape that we may be able to endure the testing. None of the wicked will understand. Wickedness will increase. It will continue to increase all through the the tribulation, and that's one reason for the tribulation is to let wickedness go to its fullest extent to demonstrate that it cannot produce any level of success. And then in verse 11 we read, And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was three and a half years, 1,260 days. Yes, but there's another 30 days here that's added on for the judgment of the wicked. And then in verse 12, those who have been judged as wicked and have been removed from the earth, uh, that leaves those who are believers. And that's why Daniel says, How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days, another 90 days after the end of the uh, tribulation. So Jesus Christ returns, and then there's this 90-day transition period between the end of the tribulation and the actual beginning of the millennium. And this is a time to fulfill all of the various judgments that must take place for the cleansing of the land, cleansing of the temple, and the beginning of the construction of the temple. And that takes place uh, 30 days between the 1,260 days and the 1,290 days, and then another 45 days to complete the cleansing and the judgment. And then we have the conclusion in verse 13, But you, Daniel, go your way till the end. So Daniel would live out the rest of his life, just a few more years uh, before he died. We don't know how he died or where. And he would rest. The end of his mission as a prophet, as a prime minister, as a communicator of God's word would end. You shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days with another emphasis on the fact that there is an inheritance for the faithful believer when he is raised from the dead in the resurrection at the end time and in the eternal kingdom. So that brings us to an end of our study of Daniel. 
Daniel is a great book to emphasize that no matter how horrendous life may get, God is still in control, and God will still be in control no matter what happens in the future. I've read some intelligence reports in the last couple of days that seem to indicate that that, uh, there are those who believe that Osama bin Laden has access to suitcase nuclear weapons. There are others who think that uh, possibly he already has one in the U.S. We don't know. We don't know what could transpire in the next couple of years, and and we can be sure, I think, that there will be another terrorist attack at some level. How horrible it will be, how extensive it will be, we don't know. The repercussions may be horrendous, but we know that Jesus Christ controls history. Jesus Christ may continue to protect us, and nothing serious may befall us. But we have to be prepared, and the best way to be prepared is to take in the Word of God and to let our souls be fortified by doctrine, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of the fact that you do control history and you will bring all things to their final conclusion. We are reminded that no matter how horrible things get for Israel and for the Jews during the tribulation, that ultimately you will deliver those who are positive, that you are always faithful to us, even today, that you will not allow us to be tested beyond our ability, but you have given us the doctrine we need so that we can rely upon you, we can trust you, we can rest upon your provision that no matter what the difficulty may be, no matter how horrendous the circumstances might appear, we know that you are the God who controls these things and you will uh, give us rest in our souls despite the external adversity. Now, we thank you for the study that we have had, the encouragement we received from it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.